The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the Word, uh, ready to let the Holy Spirit teach us the Word and, and guide and direct our thinking. Uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together to study your word. We thank you for these people who are here for their dedication, their desire to know your word, their desire to make it a part of their life, their willingness to take time out of their busy schedules to make study of your word and its application a priority. Father, it's believers like this that are the strength and backbone of this nation. And Father, we pray that you would continue to raise up men and women who are dedicated to study application of your word in every area of life. Father, we pray for this congregation that you will continue to Provide for us, continue to supply the needs that we have, and we're grateful for all that you have provided for us. Now, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we would be able to concentrate, to focus, and that we would be responsive to what God the Holy Spirit teaches us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 31 is our touchstone this evening as we continue our study of the life of Jacob. Now, as I pointed out in the previous chapters, there are two doctrines that seem to be embedded or underlying what's going on in this in this section. Actually, there's more that we could develop if we uh, took some time to do so, such as the faithfulness of God, the promise of God. But that is really built on an underlying doctrine of divine guidance, that God is directing the life of Jacob as he leaves the land, as he goes to the land of his forefathers in Padan Aram in Haran, which is the city where his uncle Laban lives. This is the city that where Abram had stopped for a while on his way to the land that God had directed him to. And it is during that time while he's there that he undergoes several adventures, but the biggest test that he has to face is the test of his uh, father-in-law, who is more of a chiseler and craftier and more of a finagler than he is. 
And in the process of going through the, the deception related to uh, when he was supposed to marry Rachel and he woke up the next morning after marrying who he thought was Rachel and realizing that uh, his father-in-law had switched girls on him and he was married to Leah and not Rachel. And then he had to work another seven years for Rachel. We saw that God used that as a means of divine discipline, sort of a, uh, he, got, um, he got a taste of his own medicine. And God often disciplines us that way by taking the areas which we tend to be uh, weak in sin and our sin nature, and He uses that against us to uh, teach us a few lessons in our spiritual growth. Then we saw that after that, that Jacob uses an ancient Near Eastern superstition to try to increase his own holdings among the flocks of Jacob. And he's, he does this strange thing where he takes these sticks and he strips off the bark so that they're striped, and he he uh, pounds those into the ground so that as the uh, sheep and the goats are mating, that they will this will somehow influence the production uh, so that they'll produce striped and spotted uh, offspring. Which he's made a deal with Laban that all the stri- he gets all the striped and spotted offspring. But what we discover in the next chapter, in chapter 31, is that God appears to him in a dream and speaks to him and says that, you know, that didn't work. It was me. And what we discover through this whole process is that God is the one who is covertly guiding and directing the affairs in Jacob's life. God is the one who's disciplining Jacob, who's working in his spiritual life, bringing him to spiritual maturity. God is the one who is blessing Jacob, not because of anything that Jacob does. In fact, Jacob is making a lot of bad decisions. Nevertheless, God blesses him, not because of who and what he is, but because of the Abrahamic covenant. God has a broader sovereign purpose that he is bringing about through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob as he is building the Jewish people. And that takes precedence over uh, flaws and failures in the life of the individual believers, Isaac or Jacob or even Abraham earlier. And so what we see here is some lessons related to divine guidance. And so I want to stop in this week and next week, go through what the Scripture says about divine guidance and decision-making. Because what we see when we get into chapter 31 is that Jacob has to start making some decisions about how long he's going to stay with dear old father-in-law and uncle Laban. Now, that's interesting, both uncle and father-in-law now. But he's staying with the dear old uncle and father-in-law Laban. How much longer does he stay out of the land? When does he go back to the land? What does he take with him? What are the conditions? How does he, how does he leave to go back? All of these are various decisions that Jacob has to make. And behind the scenes, what we discover is that God is working. Now, God has not spoken, given direct guidance and special revelation to Jacob since he's on the way out of the land. He stopped at Bethel, spent the night there, had a, had a warm, comfortable bed with a stone pillow. And while he was there, he had this vision of angels going up the stairway to heaven, the angels ascending and descending. And it was there that God not only reconfirmed the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, 
but promised him that wherever he went, whatever he did outside of the land, God was going to bless him. Now, that's important because a first tendency might be to think that just as when Abraham left the land, he's outside of the geographical will of God, Isaac started to leave the land. He went to Gerar, the Philistines, and he might have to avoid the famine, left the land, but God appeared to him and said, don't leave the land. So we see that there was clearly a geographical will that God had for this family related to the promised land. But when Isaac is, or when Jacob is leaving, God appears to him and says that he will be with him while he's out of the land. God will bless him and prosper him while he's out of the land, and God will bring him back. So with Jacob, there is the divine contingency to take care of him outside the promised land, but God's going to bring him back. Now, the question that always that people always ask, and younger people tend to address these questions or ask these questions more than more mature folks do, because, frankly, the older you are, the more you've already made all these decisions, good, bad, or indifferent, and, and we've set the course of our life. But as parents... You give guidance to your children. They have decisions to make. If they'll listen to you, that is, you give guidance to your children. Depends on whether they're between 16 and 22. Before that, you can give guidance. After that, you can give guidance. In between, you know, that you might as well just keep your mouth shut. But we have these decisions to make. And if you're grandparents, you can give guidance and direction to younger people as they try to make those tough decisions about where to go to college, where to go to, uh, whether to go to college, what to pursue for a career, what should they do with their life, how should they uh, uh, devote themselves to a career, whatever that should be, what about getting married, should they get married, when should they get married, should they marry this person or that person. All of those decisions that are so crucial and so formative usually come between the ages of 18 and 28, when it seems like, you know, as, we're, as we mature, we look back and we say, how in the world could I have made all these decisions? I was so young and dumb way back then. I didn't know what I know now if I could do it all over again. So we often ask those questions about divine guidance and decision-making early on. And so I want to go through this because there's, there's ultimately two views that we find among Christians on how to know the will of God. So these these issues come up. There's sort of a traditional view that many people teach that has this idea of living in the center of God's will. That God has a specific will for each believer at any point of time. This includes ge- geographical will that God wants you in, in X location and all the time. There's always a specific place where God wants you. Uh, there's a, a, a specific person God wants you to marry. There's a, a specific job that God has for you in life. Everything is directed by God. He has one specific thing for you, and so you need to find out what it is so that you can have maximum happiness by living in the center of God's will. This is juxtaposed to what I consider to be a more biblical approach to decision-making in the will of God and divine guidance, and that is that God gives us the principles for living in His Word. And we need to learn that, and as we learn His Word under the guidance and direction of God the Holy Spirit, He builds 
maturity into our lives. And we all know that as we learn the Word of God, that doctrine that we learn, the principles of Scripture that we learn that become part of our soul, that's usable doctrine, is often referred to in Scripture by the Greek word epinosis. Gnosis meaning just knowledge. Epinosis meaning full uh, full knowledge or, or usable knowledge. It's that reservoir of doctrine in the soul that one can use for application. When we start applying it as we mature, the Old Testament r- describes that as wisdom, as wisdom, and uses the Hebrew word chokmah, C-H-O-K-M-A-H, chokmah. And w- chokmah has to do with skill. And skill is the idea of taking this knowledge that you have and being able to produce something that has significance and value and beauty. It has an aesthetic quality to it that is part of who we are as image bearers of God, that being created in the image and likeness of God. We also have the ability to create and to make things. And so that a, a, a much neglected area of doctrine and study is the whole area of, of beauty and aesthetics and art, that there's biblical doctrine of these things because that relates to our, our creatureliness. That's why you come to the Psalms and you have David as the king of Israel developing from the framework of his own, uh, of his own creatureliness and create his, the creativity aspect, the worship in the tabernacle. Isn't it interesting that when you look at the stripped-down, scaled-down version of worship in the Mosaic Law, you have all of the rituals, but there's no music, there's no choir, there's uh, very little instruction in regard to prayer. All of this is developed, though, from by Old Testament believers from within the framework of the doctrine that they learn. So it is that that's, that comes under the category of wisdom. And the Jews understood this as uh, wisdom literature, so that when they classified the Old Testament books, they had three categories. English loses a lot because we categorize books according to uh, a little different scheme. We talk about the, the first five books are the books of the Pentateuch. That's the law. And then we have the historical books. And then we have the... Uh, we call it poetry, uh, Job in Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Then we have the uh, major prophets and then the minor prophets, five basic divisions of the Old Testament. But that's not how the Jews looked at it. The Jews divided it uh, three ways. You have the law, which is the foundation of the Old Testament. Then you have what they called the Nevi'im or the prophets. And the prophets in- began with Joshua. Now, that doesn't fit most people's understanding of of prophecy. We think of prophecy as that which foretells the future. We think of prophecy as as Isaiah's prophecy about the future of Israel, the destruction of Israel, the uh, coming of the Babylonians, judgment of the Babylonians, all of this, the coming of the the Redeemer, the suffering servant in the last part of of, uh, Isaiah, related to the coming of the Messiah. Jeremiah, the prophecy of the destruction of the nation and their future restoration. Ezekiel, we think of his prophecies. We think of prophecy as foretelling the future. But the foundational role of a prophet in the Old Testament was to serve as sort of a prosecuting attorney from the Supreme Court of Heaven. 
And so it, the role of the prophet was based on Leviticus 26, which was the five cycles of discipline outlined by God as he warned Israel that if you disobey me, I'll take you through this stage and that stage. Then if you continue to be obedient, disobedient, we'll go to a third stage and then a fourth stage, and ultimately I'll take you out of the land. Those were the five cycles of discipline. It's expanded in Deuteronomy 28 that where we have both blessing and cursing. And the role of the prophet was sort of like a court, in, in one sense a court reporter, because he was, he was recording the obedience and the blessings and then the cursings, the judgments of God. But he often would come announcing judgment on Israel because they had disobeyed God. So that was the role of the prophet. So when we look at Joshua, Joshua judges First uh, Samuel, or actually Samuel, in the Hebrew they didn't divide the two, just Samuel and Kings. Those are called the former prophets. We look at that as history, but see what the prophet is doing is he is giving the divine interpretation of Israel's early history in light of the blessing and cursings and the outworking of those divine judgments as listed in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That's what's happening in, in the former, I mean, in the, in the latter prophets with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets is that they are working out how that fifth cycle of discipline is going to occur. They're foretelling it, and then they're talking about how ultimately there will be another dispersion and then finally a complete restoration. That's the prophets. Then you have this other book, group called the writings or wisdom literature. And wisdom literature was Job. Job is designed to teach people how to handle what appears to be undeserved suffering. You have the Psalms. Psalms is wisdom literature. It talks about all manner of things, how to handle suffering, the laments toward God, that, that uh, you have various lament psalms where the psalmist brings his complaints to God that... that uh, you know, everybody's against me. I'm, I'm being surrounded by my enemies. I'm being slandered. Uh, how can I survive? And then he turns his focus more and more to the character of God, usually ending in a praise toward God. You have uh, praise psalms and you have thanksgiving psalms. But you see, all of this was set to music. There's no basis for that, no, no mandate for that in the Mosaic Law. This is an outgrowth of, of the individual believer's orientation to God and the application of creativity as he applies the wisdom from the storehouse of doctrine in his soul to worship. So David creates these enormous choirs and musicians and orchestras. They were, they were enormous. They probably had four or five hundred members and then when they would uh, come into the tabernacle and, and they are the temple rather at, during the great feast days and they would sing these psalms that would elevate the thinking of the people to the glory and the grandeur of God. So all of that grows out of doctrine in the soul that is then taken to a new level in terms of creative application called wisdom. Then you have the book of Proverbs which is teaching wisdom principles about every area of life from father to son. Ecclesiastes looks at it from the negative side, that, that everything is vanity and empty unless you uh, have, have a relationship with God at the core of your life because ultimately there is no meaning, there's no hope, there's no happiness without God. So you have this Old Testament concept 
of wisdom, chokma of skill. And the place where we learn the meaning of this word chokma is really comes out of uh, Exodus when God calls uh, Aholiab and Bezalel as the craftsmen, the silversmiths, goldsmiths, the carpenters, the ones who are designing all of the furniture that's going to go into the tabernacle. And they are given skill, chokmah, to work the gold, to work the silver, to create all of this beautiful, intricate furniture. That skill, that's where we get the concept. It's a very concrete term in Hebrew. It's not, it's not this sense that we get from the Greeks that wisdom is abstract philosophical knowledge. For, the, for a Jew, for the Old Testament, wisdom is something very practical. It's being able to take the principles of Scripture and apply them to whatever situation you find yourself in in life and being able to then create of your life something that is beautiful and brings glory to God within the framework of the angelic conflict. So this view of how to make decisions and how to work with the will of God in your life is, a, is usually referred to as the wisdom approach. So that in contrast to the other position which comes to any uh, decision in life, and if they're consistent, it would be any decision in life not and every decision in life, not just big ones but every decision in life. And instead of uh, contemplating your navel, uh, looking for some kind of inner vibration from God to tell you to make this choice as opposed to that choice, that in this approach, you're not looking for God to tell you which way to go. You're looking at the Word of God, and which is why God's given it to us the way He has, is to force us to think deeply and profoundly and creatively about what He has said, to apply it to every issue of life so that his word is given. I mean, it's just remarkable to think about how the Bible is written. We have this history in the Old Testament. We have the poetry, the wisdom literature, the New Testament. We have epistles. We have prophecy. And this is written in such a way that it's not like a systematic theology that gives you uh, various doctrines, and here's 20 points on this doctrine and 30 points on that doctrine. But it's given in the Old Testament in terms of just the shoe leather of people's lives. And then you understand their reflections in, in the Psalms and Proverbs, their reflections and meditations on life in light of what God has revealed to them. In the New Testament, we have a more, a more detailed explanation of, uh, of these, these principles often geared towards directions in terms of, of uh, prohibitions or, or positive commands toward obedience. But, what, but it's all designed to be communicated in any culture and through any language throughout any place in the world. So that whether you're Chinese with an Asian background, whether you're Slavic, whether you're African, whether you're uh, South American, you can come to the Word of God and you can learn what's there, meditate on it, and think about it in terms of your own life and come up with the principles needed to make the right kind of decisions to glorify God. And that's the test, is are we going to go through the decision-making process in such a way that that it's how we come up through the, how we go through the decision making process is as important and sometimes it's more important than the decision we make coming out the other end and I, I 
always go back to the went back when I was in an uh, ROTC in college, and this is something typical if you were in the military that they will have FTXs, and we would every semester we would have these um, uh, small unit leadership drills, and they would go back in back in those days there were all these undeveloped woods behind the military science building at Stephen F. Austin, and they would form these lanes. And you would be in a team of like a five or six men, and your job was to you'd be given a mission, and you would leave, and you'd have some something would happen. You'd get ambushed, or or somebody'd go crazy, or all of a sudden somebody'd step on a mine, or whatever it would be. And you had, if you were the patrol leader, you had to make decisions right there based on everything you'd learned in the classroom and past experience. You had to make decisions as to how to handle whatever the crisis was that occurred. Sometimes there were clear right and wrong answers, but a lot of times you, you had to, you'd have to think outside the box. You'd have to come up with creative solutions. There may be four or five different ways in which you could successfully handle the challenge that was presented before you. There were clearly wrong decisions, and there were clearly right decisions, but rarely was there one right decision. And I think that's what God does with us many times in the decisions we make in life is he's not looking for us to come up with that one right decision, but he is teaching us how to face the issues and the realities of life and the problems and to take the doctrine in our soul and then apply it to those those decisions in such a way as to produce that which glorifies him. Why? Because we're in those FTX training lanes right now in preparation for that future role as uh, those who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So as we learn to make decisions now and to shoulder responsibilities and to take this reservoir of doctrine that we learn from the Word and apply it to all these different situations that come our way in life, handling people problems at work, handling uh, family problems, handling uh, financial issues, handling health problems, that builds in us spiritual strength and maturity that in turn is going to be the foundation for our future role in the millennial kingdom and on into, on into eternity. So... We're going to look at this whole issue of how to go about making decisions and <clears throat> dealing with the, what God wants us to do in life, otherwise known as the will of God. So we're looking at divine guidance and the doctrine of the will of God. Well, first point, we have to define our terms. The term will of God is used to describe three different aspects of divine volition in relation to His creation. There's three different ways in which we use this. So when somebody says, what's God's will for my life in this situation? Well, what do they mean? Let's think a little more clearly about what exactly are you saying when you use that term, will of God. The first way in which the word is used in the Scripture has to do with God's sovereign volition with regard to His creation, where He brings to pass what He wills and what He has decreed. This is sometimes called the decretive will of God. Sometimes it's the sovereign will of God. Sometimes it's called the secret will of God. It's called the secret will of God because it's secret. We don't know what it is. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But whatever happens tomorrow is what God decreed in eternity past. But we come to that, and within that decree, there's the flexibility to handle 
uh, human volition and human decision. So the decree doesn't destroy human volition, but it includes that framework. And the best, the best illustration I ever heard to, to help me understand this it goes back to the fall, that when God created all the structures and systems in creation, uh, he created all the biological systems. He created all of the uh, uh, astronomical, meteorological systems, everything, all the ecological systems on the planet. But when Adam sinned, it sent it sent shock waves through everything. It changed everything. It changed the it changed animals. It changed man. It changed uh, the way our internal organs function, it changed dental structure, it changed the way the world operated meteorologically, it changed things ecologically. Uh, you know, all of a sudden now plants that were nice and wonderful are producing thorns and thistles. Animals that ate grass are now eating meat. That affects their gastrointestinal system, uh, their dental system, everything. What happened? God built into every system enough flexibility to handle the chaos of, that human volition could bring. Now, when we think about it that way, we realize that God's sovereign will is broad enough to where he can con control and bring about that which he intends to bring about, but his omniscience is so, in, so profound and so detailed that that, that divine computer factors in all the variables from human volition so that he can bring about his will without violating human volition. It includes the chaos that can come in from whatever decisions we make. But God's sovereign will is his will. He will bring about in human history what he intends to bring about. We'll see some verses on this in just a minute. So we talk about God's sovereign will. Now the problem here is if you say, what's God's will for my life? If you're talking about God's sovereign will, you don't know. It's undiscoverable. It is his secret will. You don't know what that is. What we usually mean when we ask that question has to do more with uh, you know, how to make decisions. But there's another category of will that we talk about, and that's God's moral will or his uh, revealed will where God says, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. This is the specific revealed uh, will of God. He wants us not to do certain things, and he wants us to do certain things. He wants us to make the study of doctrine a pious priority in our life. He wants us to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. He wants us to, to know the Word. He wants us to pray without ceasing. All of these things are God's revealed will. We know this is what God wants us to do. This is also called God's uh, desired will. There's a third category, and that's God's overriding will, so that Many times he allows us the freedom to make certain decisions. We make those decisions and pass the decision-making test, but then he says, okay, I'm not going to let you bring to fruition the decision you just made. Somebody may go through a whole process, for example, where they uh, think through the issues and they decide, you know, I really want to use the financial resources that God has given me to support a particular missionary. And then God takes our job away from us. We pass the test, but we're not going to be able to do what we thought about because God has other things going on in the plan, but we pass that part of the test. We, uh, Paul, for example, 
wanted to go to Rome many times and just it wasn't possible. God overrode his volition. His, he made a good decision. He wanted to do the right thing for the right reasons, but God said, no, that's not what my sovereign will wants. So God's overriding will is a subcategory of his sovereign will. Now, if we're going to chart this, it would look something like this. This circle would describe the bounds of God's sovereign will. Everything within the circle would be what God has decreed to take place in human history. There are many things that are outside of that circle, and those are the what-ifs. Like, what if they had won at the Alamo? What if they had won at Bull Run? You know, there you go. What if, um, uh, what if the Japanese had decided to send a, another wave of bombers against uh, Pearl Harbor instead of just being satisfied with what they did in the first attack? What would have happened in history? And all of these many different things. At the Battle of Antietam, what would have happened if the Yankees had not discovered uh, Lee's battle plan that was rolled up and hidden inside of a, a courier cigar? Uh, the uh, South would have won the war and possibly threatened uh, D.C. So what, all the what-ifs are outside of that circle because that wasn't what God decreed to happen in history. Then we have God's moral and revealed will, these are the things that we know God wants us to do or has told us he doesn't want us to do. And that describes another uh, area of boundary. Now, see, on my computer, there's a great contrast in the colors, but the way it comes across up on the screen, they're almost identical. One's the, it's yellow on the right and green on the... I mean, yellow on the left and green on the right. That circle on the right overlaps because within God's sovereign will there are areas of obedience where we are obedient to God's word that coincides with his sovereign will but there are areas that that are outside of his sovereign will where we're disobedient and areas where we are in God's sovereign will but we're disobedient to his revealed will so there's sort of a uh, area in between where there's an overlap between God's revealed will and God's sovereign will. So that introduces us to the basic terminology. Now let's look at point number two, which is some scripture to back up the whole concept of God's sovereign will. Some people have problems with God's sovereignty because they just can't quite mesh God's sovereignty with human individual responsibility. And that's generally because we try to deal... It has to do ultimately with causality. That if God is sovereign, then he must bring about what he wants to bring about, which has to do with causation. But remember, we have to think of this in terms of the creator-creature distinction. That when you and I as creatures with finite minds and finite reference points think about causation, we only think of causation in the creaturely realm. But see, when you start thinking about God as the creator, God can bring about causation in other ways that are outside the purview of our frame of reference. So don't make them say, I think this is the fundamental problem with Calvinism, is that in Calvinism and the way they deal with election and the sovereignty of God is they're they're trying to make the causation at the creaturely level the same as causation at the creator level. Daniel 4.35, God says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, 
but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. This is uh, Daniel talking. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he, that is God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? God's the boss. He holds in his hands the the heart of the king, Proverbs says. So, he accomplishes what he wants. We just don't know what that is. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. But he does it in such a way as to not violate the volitional responsibility of the individual ruler so that God is not using him as a robot. He's not reaching in there and tweaking his uh, volition. Revelation 4.1, John says uh, uh, that he saw a door open in heaven and he heard a voice like a trumpet speaking to him saying, the bottom line's the important part, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Not what might take place, what ought to take place, what could take place, but what must take place. See, if God is able to accurately predict and foretell what happens in the future, then that means he must be able to control all the data, all the uh, what appear to us to be insignificant details. I've often thought it would be uh, an interesting thing to write a a book of history of how the major events of history hinged on some minor, insignificant detail. Like at the Battle of Antietam where a, a Confederate courier was captured and it was discovered he had the battle plan rolled up inside that cigar. I mentioned it a minute ago. What an insignificant thing, and yet it changed the course of the battle and, in effect, it changed the course of the uh, uh, war of uh, uh, northern aggression. Come on now, y'all can lighten up a little bit. So, these things must take place. God is in control, but not in such a way that it overrides our responsibility. Ephesians 1.11, also we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Again, the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Romans 9.19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? God is in control ultimately. Third point, the specifics of God's decreed will are secret. Don't try to figure it out. Don't get yourself all wrapped up in overthinking, trying to figure out uh, what God has decreed for tomorrow. The sun will come up. We know that much. Whether or not we will see it is only going to be determined tomorrow. Don't pay attention to the meteorologist on channel 2, 11, or 13 because they could very well be wrong. How many times have we seen that? So the specifics of God's decreed will are secret, unrevealed, and unknown, and unknowable, we could add. They can't be known until after the fact. Whatever happened is what God decreed to happen. But that doesn't absolve us of responsibility in those decisions. That's the important thing to remember. First divine institution God establishes in the garden is individual responsibility and accountability. So just because God uh, decrees it, as part of his permissive will, it doesn't allow us to come back and say, oh, well, you know, that was what God wanted, so 
as if that absolves people of responsibility. And how many times do we see people do that? It just drives me nuts. Something happens. There, there may be injustice involved. There may be maltreatment involved. Or people make a stupid decision, and somebody says, well, you know, that's what God wanted. No, God wanted a responsible, good decision. He didn't want stupidity. He allowed stupidity. He allows bad decisions, but that doesn't absolve us of responsibility. That's the problem with the other view of decision-making. See, if God has a specific thing for you to do in every point in life, then all you have to do is get in touch with that inner mystical liver-quiver directive vibration or whatever it is that directs you, and as soon as you get that, and God, you know God wants me to do this instead of that, if something bad happens, then you can blame God. You didn't make the decision. God told you what to do. And so now you just say, well, you know, it's God's fault. And that's really what happens. People blame God for everything when they're operating on some sort of mystical concept of how to know the will of God. Fourth point. We can only know the specifics of God's moral or revealed will. This brings to bear the whole concept of revelation. God gives two kinds of revelation, and we have to remember this, especially as a backdrop to what we're going to get into in Genesis 31. We see that once again God speaks and gives direction to, uh, to Jacob. Special revelation. But the interesting thing is, he just tells Jacob to go back to the land, but he doesn't tell him how to go back to the land, what the conditions are, whether or not to uh, talk to his father-in-law and explain what he's going to do. And we have this whole strange episode with Rachel stealing the household idols and hiding them on her saddle, and, and there's both good and bad decisions made in the process of going back to the land. So we have to come back to some of these categories in order to understand uh, decision-making. So we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. And nine, I mean, almost 100% of the time, I'll leave room for the possibility of missing something. But whenever you read theologians or writers who, who are talking about this, and they give you some idea that that you can pray and God will give you direction. You can, in fact, I have a quote out. We'll, we'll deal with probably Thursday night in Hebrews on divine guidance. That you can pray to the Holy Spirit and He'll answer you. You'll be surprised who said this. You'll pray to the Holy Spirit and He'll give you an answer. And all the scriptures that are used come out of the Book of Acts, and in every one of those examples, it's special revelation during the pre-canon period. And, it, and it's the Holy Spirit giving specific direction. There's no problem with that in that environment, just as God is speaking to, to Jacob in Genesis and giving him specific revelation, just as he did with Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And nevertheless, God got him where he wanted. So we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will so all of this has impact on our understanding of revelation and God's communication and the limitations of the Bible in terms of the fact that the canon's completed and there's no more revelation today. Okay, a couple of scripture verses. Romans 2.18 says, To know his will, it doesn't stop there, and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So just look at that verse a minute. 
the first phrase says we are to know his will, but how do we know his will according to this verse? It's based on the instructions coming out of the law. It's not just knowing his will in relation to anything in life. It has to do with its foundation is that which has been revealed in the law that is the Old Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when you come to a really hard time, difficult time in life, health test, death, crisis, and you say, what does God want me to do? Well, he told you, (laughs) give thanks. Not just verbally, but be thankful in your soul. Because you know that God's in control and he's working all things together for good. Romans 8.28, and we can claim that promise. And we know that we can be thankful even though we may not understand and we'll never, may never understand all the, all the, the uh, things that went into that situation. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. These are uh, specific mandates that describe that circle, uh, uh, the boundary for God's moral will. This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Specifically, don't marry an unbeliever. Should I marry this person or that person? Don't marry an unbeliever. What uh, partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? There are hundreds and hundreds of statements in the Scripture telling us what God's will is for us. Walk by means of the Spirit. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, Don't lie. Tell the truth. All these are part of... of, uh, Uh, the boundaries for what God wants us to do. As long as we're within those boundaries, then whatever we do is the will of God. Now think about that. As long as you're not stepping outside the boundaries of God's revealed will, then you're doing the will of God. As long as you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, applying doctrine, putting doctrine first, fulfilling all these other, other mandates then whatever decision you make, and let me just be almost facetious about it, whether you put your right shoe on first or your left shoe on first, it's a non-moral decision. It's, it's, it's good. How you, how you drive to work. You know, if, if you follow the center of God's will idea in every decision that you make, ultimately it means every minor decision, whether you get up at 6.30 or 6.40, what does God want me to do? You have to drive it down that narrow because think about it. If you have that extra 10 minutes, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to leave 10 minutes later, 10 minutes earlier? You leave 10 minutes later, you get caught in traffic. You get caught in traffic, take a shortcut, have a fatal accident. Oops. You know, if you left 10 minutes earlier and gone the other route and missed the traffic, then that accident wouldn't have occurred. See, big things happen on the basis of minor decisions. So you decide to wear this instead of that and some opportunity comes up at work and you dress casual and you should have dressed up and you can't go to that luncheon because you're not dressed to go down to um, a, a fancy restaurant. See, it, it, minor decisions that we don't really think about impact major events in our life. So if we're going to follow that logic out, then you have to pray about every single decision. Am I going to have chicken or beef tonight? Well, what's the long-term consequence going to be? Well, you know, my cholesterol will go up. and you know, I may have a heart attack and die 10 years earlier, whatever it is. 
Okay, I'm being a little facetious here, but I, I'm driving home the point that it's an issue. Are we going to try to find the, the center of God's will on every decision in life, or are we going to make wisdom decisions from the framework of, of uh, doctrine in our soul? Fifth point, then. Therefore, God's sovereign will includes his moral will, but his moral will is not always his decree. God has permissive will. He allows creatures to violate that moral will, and that's included within the sovereign will. When the creature does what God has prohibited, then uh, his revealed will is outside of the decreed will. This is what I was picturing with those, with those overlapping circles in the chart earlier. Point number six, usually we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision. That's when most people ask that question. Big issues in life. Well, if it only applies to big issues of life, why doesn't it apply to small issues of life? And it really does. That's why the decision-making comes from this reservoir of doctrine in our soul. Every uh, God's will affects every decision we make to some degree because everything in life is addressed by the Word of God. Gives us a framework for addressing every issue. Point seven. If man is to do all things to the glory of God, then even the most minute decision demands attention. That's what I've been illustrating already. But not every decision that we make involves either A, a moral issue, or B, a specific will of God in relation to geographical will or operational will. Now, operational will is the same for every believer. That's what we usually refer to just as the plan of God. That means you need to walk by means of the Spirit. Use 1 John 1, 9 when you sin. Get back in fellowship. Study the Word. Apply the Word. Uh, you, as you grow and mature, your spiritual gift will become uh, manifest. You may not know exactly what it is, but that's not uh, always necessary. It is if you have a communication or leadership gift, but many times uh, service gifts are just manifested all kinds of ways. You can have a, a service gift that that uh, because you have talents in the area of uh, uh, many different things, music or uh, work. Uh, some some people uh, doing technology. All of these things they, they they have natural talents. They have the gift of service, and they just want to serve in the local church. But many decisions that we make don't involve a moral, specifically a moral or a spiritual issue. So how do we make that decision? I mean, some people may think it's a spiritual issue as to whether you go to A&M or University of Texas. But for most of us, we recognize that both are carnal and you need to go to some other school. See, most, many decisions that we make in life, we just have to make a wise decision and there's no necessary right or wrong in terms of a moral issue. Eighth point. Since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, you know doctrine, you know what the Word of God says, that thou shalt and that thou shalt not. Since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. Doesn't relate to you know. You can't ask, well, God, what do you want me to do tomorrow? Well, if I have a choice between this job or that job, 
Uh, tell me what the answer is. No, the issue is you look at your life, you look at your talents, your abilities, what you want to do. If, if it's an issue re- relating to geography you, and you have a family, you need to decide, okay, am I going to be able to get uh, maximum Bible teaching for me and for my family so I can grow spiritually uh, in Houston or San Francisco? I can make more money in San Francisco. I have greater job advancement in San Francisco. There are many things I'd love to do at this particular job in San Francisco, but there's no doctrine in San Francisco. So am I willing to compromise spiritual growth and spiritual and involvement in a good local church for advancement in a temporal de- uh, in a temporal job, career, uh, etc. Now, it depends on what you're involved in. If you're in the military, a lot of times you don't have an option. But if you're not in the military, you do. And I, I can tell you how many times I have seen uh, families make this decision where they really have a great job opportunity to go to X location, but there's no solid church there. There's no doctrine being taught there. And they end up tubing it in their spiritual life. They think, oh, well, I can do tapes or I can listen on the Internet. And that's great and that's fine and that's wonderful. But very few people really in the, in the final analysis, especially if you've been under face-to-face teaching for years, very few people have the ability to and the discipline to stick with it in a non-face-to-face situation. It, it, it's non-face-to-face learning is great in have-to situations. But the, the ideal situation is if you can get away from wherever you are and go where you're going to learn the Word and you're going to grow spiritually because when you die, God's not going to look at a resume and, and say, well, isn't it great how well you did in your career and you punched you know, this clock and you made this step and you did that and you went to this seminar and that seminar and you fulfilled this responsibility here and that responsibility there. Great. He's going to look at one resume and that's the spiritual resume related to the doctrine in your soul and spiritual growth. And so the most important issue is not... You know, where am I going to go in terms of advancement in my career? But is this decision going to put me in a place where I can advance spiritually and serve the Lord the best? That's the most important question to ask in any of these other areas. That's why we have promises like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. God directs. We can't at all factor in all the data. And we look at this situation and we say, that looks like the right decision. I weigh all the facts. I, I, I list out all the pros and cons. I talk, to, uh, I talk to my pastor. I talk to spiritually mature believers that know me and whom I trust. I, I've done all the investigation. And finally, I just have to put it in the Lord's hands. And you uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he directs your paths. It's covert. I taught this last week when I was in, in Preston, and one of the men in the church there who's a retired uh, uh, Na- Navy chief came up and said, you know, that, that's exactly what happened in my life. I was convinced I had the gift of pastor-teacher. I got accepted to a Bible college. I, uh, I got out of the Navy. I went to the Bible college, moved there. Uh, within a week, everything I tried to do in terms of getting a job, everything else, finding a place to live, God closed every door, and my only option was to go back in the Navy. And he ended up making, making that his career. But God made it clear and guided through and made those paths straight for him. 
He, we might make a bad decision, but if we're trusting the Lord in the midst of it, God's not going to. It's not going to end up in a collapse. He's going to direct covertly through the circumstances and situations. Uh, we're not going to get there tonight, but we see that with Jonah. Jonah made a decision to go elsewhere than God directed him, but he ended up exactly where God wanted him. See, you, if God does want you in in a place, you can't run away from it. God will make it clear. Your goal is just to study, learn the Word, apply the Word, and even if you make what is a decision that God really doesn't want you to make, guess what? You're not going to bring it to fruition. God will make your path straight. He will bring about that which He uh, desires in your life. So we don't have to get involved in a whole lot of of, of inner anxiety and concern about uh, about what to do. So the question then that I've been addressing is, is there just one will of God for every decision, or is it the idea of wisdom coming from doctrine for living, so that as long as we stay within the boundaries of God's more revealed will, whatever we do, that's going to be hard for some of you, but that means whether you decide to go to UT where there, and live in Austin where there are good doctrinal churches where you can grow spiritually, or go to Texas A&M where there are a couple of good churches and you can learn the Word of God and grow spiritually, and you can satisfy your spiritual priorities in either location, either one is okay. Either one can be okay. Now, I know that's tough for some of you, especially some of you Aggies. That gets a little tough. Bruce is back there laughing. So... Okay, next time we're going to come back and look at some specific biblical examples of decision-making, those that involve uh, direction, specific direction, specific revelation, and those that don't. And we're going to see some telling examples of how the, a couple of times when the apostles made tough decisions and there's no guidance by the Holy Spirit, there's no direct revelation and it's, it's real interesting how they articulate their decision-making. It just kind of goes against what is popularly thought of as how God directs and guides. And we see the same kind of thing going on in the background with Jacob, is that whether Jacob is trusting God or not, God has a sovereign will, and God moves Jacob through that the pattern of his life. And even when Jacob is disobedient, and even when he's obedient, God is still working things out, blessing him to bring about his ultimate purpose. We can't frustrate the will of God, but we can either be in cooperation where we experience the reality of the blessing because we're obedient, or we miss out on that privilege and that blessing. We'll get back to that next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. The study of this topic, this issue so important and timely, help us to understand how to think biblically within the framework of the wisdom that you have revealed in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.